This podcast was recorded on February 25th, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Okay, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have a special guest coming live from New York City. Well, I guess this will be recorded, but at the time it's live, it's the chief international economist from Deutsche Bank, Torsten Slock. How are you doing today? Very well, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, well, thanks for dialing in all the way from New York. Hopefully, uh, the listeners can hear this connection well. But as a way of background, I thought it's pretty interesting, your lead up to becoming the chief international economist over at Deutsche. You have some roles back at the IMF. You've worked at the OECD. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your experiences there and how they led you to, to getting into more of the sell side of the business. A long time ago in the 1990s, in the beginning of the 1990s, I worked for three years at the Central Bank of Denmark, no more or less. And then I did my PhD in economics. And then I worked for four years at the IMF in Washington, D.C., I worked for two years at the OECD in Paris, and then I came to Deutsche in 2005. Uh, and the experience there, I would say, is um, that you get to um, learn a lot of things, and you have time to think really hard about very difficult questions, because most of the work you do in those institutions is that you provide papers, information, material to the board, in the case of the IMF, and to committees, in the case of the OECD. And those papers have to be, like the working papers you see from those institutions, have to be very well written, very well articulated, very well argued and documented, using a lot of data. They don't cover all questions in the world, but they do at least try to come with some answers to specific isolated areas. And that was a very educational experience overall, trying to both have time in some cases, several months to write a report or write a working paper about a topic and then figuring out what is the answer to some difficult questions and then providing that, again, as input to a committee or a board that had to discuss that. And that's, of course, quite different from the job that I have today, but uh, it is at least a good background in terms of having thought about very difficult questions and thought about what are the methodologies and and processes that go into thinking about uh, these issues when we read Fed working papers, ECB working papers today. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty interesting you mentioned that because we, we've had that experience here at Double Lime of hiring a couple of, I'll call them, I'll put air quotes up, of academic types. And uh, the sense of urgency is a lot different than the one that uh, we typically are using in an investment business, right? <laughs> the fact that you get to sit back and think, you pull down data, you look at it many different ways. Uh, you, you reread and rewrite the paragraphs many times versus, you know, the, the sense of urgency that you need to get something out and be timely, right? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, I, I came in here in 2005 in Deutsche, and I did that also, and it took me some time to uh, adjust to the speed with which things are moving in markets. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's not an advantage to have been through uh, the most slow-moving thinking process. Uh, but it's pretty clear that um, you, if things start moving on your Bloomberg screen, you can lean back and think about it for two months, then come out and say, now I know why this moved down. 
Uh, you need to have some answers uh, relatively quickly to why do you think this is happening? And that can take, uh, in some cases, uh, even just a few minutes. In some cases, it can take a little bit longer if you need to study some data, as you know all too well, when you study hard, and meaning thinking about what the data is showing. It does take some time, some time, but um, generally speaking, uh, it is very important in markets, obviously, to be able to translate your knowledge into something that, uh, at the end of the day, is answering the question, are we buying on this news or are we selling? Right, that's that's fair. And so I was reading a paper recently from someone who was the former chief economist at the IMF, and you may be familiar with them, Olivier Blanchard. And uh, he put out a piece recently arguing, to summarize and simplify it, essentially arguing really effective that deficits don't matter or what a lot of people are referring to as the modern monetary theory. I wanted to get your takes on uh, your interpretation of the modern monetary theory. Maybe you could explain it, what it is simply to our listeners, and kind of how you think about the arguments laid out. Absolutely. So the modern monetary theory, as it's been called, or the idea that deficits don't matter, is mainly a U.S. phenomenon. I mean, when you travel around the world and talk to people about this, in particular in Europe, but also in many emerging markets, people look at you and say, are you kidding me? Is this something I should take serious? Because the problem is that um, deficits, at least for the U.S., have not mattered yet. But as we know all too well, uh, deficits matter a lot in many countries around the world, including several European countries, including, of course, uh, Italy, France. It's been instituted in the rules of the euro that the growth and stability pact, that you can only have deficits of a certain size, namely 3%. You also can only have debt levels of a certain size, namely 60% of GDP. Uh, so in that sense, it at least, at least in, from a European perspective, a lot of people think that deficits and debt levels do matter. So why is this discussion coming up in the U.S., and why do people suddenly think that uh, deficits and debt levels don't matter anymore? Well, the answer is that we have had uh, now uh, several decades where the fiscal situation in the U.S. has been steadily deteriorating, in particular since uh, 2000, 2001. Uh, Of course, this has been magnified both by the fiscal expansion after the recession in 2008, but also more recently with the tax cuts given to corporates in 2018. Uh, So people are now beginning to wonder, well, if we did these significant fiscal expansions and this significant increase in deficits and significant increase in debt levels and the stock of U.S. Treasuries outstanding grew so much uh, and we saw very little impact on Treasury rates, then you could ask the question, well, doesn't that mean that it's not having any impact at all? And maybe one answer is, yeah, maybe that's true that it's not having any impact, at least not yet. But of course, the other way of looking at this is to just say, well, maybe we haven't gotten to the critical level of debt and of deficits quite yet. And once debt levels hit that level, then we will get in a much more problematic situation. So I'm a skeptic. I do think that eventually the laws of demand and supply will begin to kick in. So one way of saying that is that eventually the supply of treasuries on its own will become problematic because you do begin to ask the question, okay, if it's not a problem yet, so debt to GDP for treasuries uh, for the U.S. government today in in round numbers is getting closer to 100%. So does that mean we can bring that to 150, 200%, 250% without any consequences? And that's where I think we may be beginning to think about, well, if you increase the stock of treasuries so much, then uh, it requires a lot of dollars, not only from the U.S., but from around the world, 
to buy those treasuries, and then you do begin to think about what the consequences are of that, in particular, of course, also for credit. Right. So I think, you know, when you say the laws of supply and demand, you're saying that those dollars have to chase those treasuries, and if there's more and more of them, the clearing price has to be lower than today's price, which means yields need to be higher. And exactly. so, yeah, and so I think I think that's a that's a great way of thinking about something we've thought about when thinking about the interest rate environment. But I've also seen in that argument you made from 2000 on, essentially that yields are lower, so it doesn't matter. And, you know, the question is, is it is it because of this policy in the U.S. or is it because of kind of the global demographics? Is it the relative value of yields in other places of the world today? And I think uh, it can be just thought of as, oh, nothing happened to rates or rates are lower today and look at the supply is so much higher. Obviously, this is a good idea just to keep the uh, foot on the accelerator. Absolutely, Jeff. I think it's exactly those two things that, first of all, as Benanke articulated in 2005 and six, that uh, there was a savings glut, that the rest of the world has excess savings. And exactly as you point out, when interest rates today are negative in the euro area, which has had and continues to have a lot of damaging effects overall on the European economy. An unintended side effect of negative interest rates, not only in Europe, but also in Japan, is exactly that the level of U.S. Treasury yields look attractive. And that yield level in the U.S. looks attractive because foreigners end up saying, well, if I can get negative interest rates in my own backyard in Japan or in my own backyard in Europe, that's not particularly attractive. So maybe I should be investing more in U.S. Treasury. So the first answer to your question is there is a lot of money in the rest of the world that is hunting yields. And given that U.S. yield levels, including on treasuries, but also in credit, are more juicy and more attractive than what you have abroad, there is and has up until at least recently been a lot of money that has been trying to hunt yields and come to the U.S. And therefore, U.S. Treasury rates have been a lot lower. A more complicated way of saying that is that the term premium remains incredibly low for U.S. Treasuries. And therefore, it is probably Firstly, and very importantly, the rest of the world is holding U.S. yields down. The second reason why U.S. long ends is also so low, it definitely also has to do with Federal Reserve policy. The Fed, before the crisis, was only controlling short-term interest rates. Then came along forward guidance, which is a sophisticated way of saying that the Fed began to talk to the long end of the yield curve in an attempt to try to keep long rates down. And along came also QE with the hope of pushing long rates down. And those policies from the Fed have certainly also had the added impact of basically trying to keep long rates lower when it wasn't enough to keep short rates lower. So the short answer to your question is that I think both the rest of the world's savings cloud and the rest of the world investing in U.S. fixed income has been holding U.S. yield levels, not only on treasuries, but also on credit down. But it certainly also is the Federal Reserve policies that have played a very important role in why the level of U.S. Treasuries continue, meaning Treasury yields continue to be so low. So those dominating forces have, at least up to this point, been more important than the fiscal forces and the fiscal deficits, which is why it's given rise, again, to the modern monetary theory. So maybe the modern monetary theory is basically just a mirage and an image that we're projecting because we can't see the forest, uh, if you will, for all the trees here that are coming simply as a result of the rest of the world buying treasuries and the Fed still having, even today, relatively low level of interest rates. So I want to take a sidebar there. It seems that in economics, 
you can just slap the word theory on something and, and people accept it as true. What What is your take on that, given uh, you've been a student of economics uh, for a long period of time? I don't mean That's to be true. insulting there, but I mean, where is this <laughs> modern monetary theory? Isn't it a postulate at best or, you know, or isn't it just an idea at best that yeah, um, I know. time but series empirically do. can show it, right? So, <laughs> As you just said a minute ago, I mean, economics is all about demand and supply. It really is not rocket science. I mean, you can come with your PhD in economics and draw and sophisticated Greek letters and put down complicated theories. But at the end of the day, if no one really understands what you're saying, then you haven't gotten really far. It actually is much, much more difficult to explain things in intuitive terms. And you're absolutely right. You just slap on the word theory here, and then it sounds sophisticated. But it really is not sophisticated, because modern monetary theory or the, the theory that deficits don't matter is basically people conjecturing that, well, maybe the deficits don't matter and you could just shrug your shoulders and say, well, maybe they do. Who knows? And you can't really test this because, as we spoke about a minute ago, we haven't really had debt levels at extreme levels. And if we haven't had that, then we haven't really stress tested this infamous theory in terms of whether it's true that the treasury yields will not be moving. And for that matter, financial markets will not be moving if you just continue to have significant deficits as far as the eye can see. Well, I guess it's better than calling it Reaganomics, right? Because back when uh, Reagan postulated the idea of all this increased spending, I think it was George H.W. Bush when he was running against him in the Republican primary, called it voodoo economics, right? So I think at least modern monetary theory sounds more plausible than something called voodoo economics, right? Well, in all fairness, I mean, think about the situation of for a long time, uh, take Greece as an example, or many emerging markets that go through financial crisis. For a long, long time, uh, interest rates were very, very low. Although uh, deficits and debt levels continue to be more and more problematic, this is the textbook for any IMF country that you, for a period, investors, they say, oh, I shouldn't look at deficits. I shouldn't really look at debt levels. And next year, oh, I shouldn't look at deficits. I shouldn't look at deficits. And then suddenly, you should look at deficits because now it hit a level where people get more worried. And that's why it really is playing with fire to walk around and say that, oh, U.S. uh, will never have that problem. So I really think it is... uh, academic theory that's um, nice for now. Uh, And I can't tell you and nobody can tell you what level of uh, deficits we need to get to before this gets problematic, because it's also unfair. Uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff and others have tried to figure out at what level of debt to GDP do things become problematic. And the U.S. is special. It's the world's reserve currency. So it's not like uh, many emerging markets and emerging market crisis that the IMF has been through. So in that sense, maybe we do have a little bit more room to maneuver. But does that mean, can we get again to 150 percent of GDP or 125? Does that mean that we just have unlimited fiscal expansions and at the end of the day have no consequences? I mean, I'm, I'm very skeptical again, simply because supply and demand will eventually, exactly as you said, begin to impact prices, including, of course, your prices on treasuries. Yeah, well, I think the pushback I've got in meetings in the last few months when, when discussing this, and even a client sent me the, the Blanchard piece, and um, this is a bond investor. It's like, what, what do you think of this? This sounds great. I struggle with some of the ideas within it because a lot of it's this equilibrium rate that deficits aren't expanding. So you can have the debt load, but if it doesn't expand, I'm like, but that's a bad presumption or a bad assumption given where we are today, whether that number's the deficit's 4% of GDP today or whether it's 7 or 8, which has been running at the last three to four months. That doesn't fit into that equilibrium equation. So I, I think the other thing I got uh, is pushback is that we'll look at Japan. 
Japan has a, a higher debt to GDP ratio, and they have a zero interest rate policy. So what do you think about that argument? Yeah, well, that's true. Well, in Japan, of course, the very important reason also why long-term interest rates are so low is exactly that the BOJ has negative interest rates or had had very, very low interest rates. And they have had QE and QQE and uh, all kinds of uh, sophisticated abbreviations have been experimented with in an attempt to try to stimulate the economy and get the economy going again. It's just been really difficult for them to generate inflation. So in that sense, um, maybe we can do some of the same uh, but the big difference, at least relative to Japan, when you compare with the U.S., is that in the U.S., uh, the dollar has the potential to go down, uh, whereas for a number of different reasons, we haven't seen uh, the yen go down as much. And as you know too well in macroeconomics, if there's one thing that's guaranteed to generate inflation, it is if you begin to depreciate your exchange rate. If you depreciate your exchange rate, then your import prices go up, which is another way of saying prices of stuff that you buy in stores and that companies buy begins to be higher. And if that's the case, that's by definition giving you some inflation. And given that the yen really hasn't gone down and there's really no deliberate policy from the BOJ to push it down, then uh, it has been an uphill battle for the BOJ to create uh, inflation in the Japanese economy. So you're right to say, and I do also, like you, in discussions with clients, have many of the same debates, namely, could it be that the whole world is going towards Japanese situation where we will have low interest rates and demographic headwinds and relatively low productivity uh, for a very, very long period. Uh, that's possible, but uh, you still end up looking at that and asking, okay, but the exchange rates of those countries that do that should normally go down. And this is why you could then begin to worry about, well, if the dollar does go down, if that would not be enough also again to begin to generate inflation. So in short, there's just so many moving parts to this issue of assuming that U.S. long-term interest rates will, quote-unquote, always stay low, that it becomes a little bit difficult uh, as an investment thesis to just assume that we will never, ever see high interest rates again. Yeah, well, I think that's right, too, how you laid it out. That's what we think about it, is that things can stay contained for a while, but once it starts to leak out, it happens very quickly. And you see that in rate moves, you see that in credit spreads. And you've seen that in credit spreads as late as the last uh, last quarter, where they were blowing out just all of a sudden the, the changing of expectations and was there you know this true global recession on the horizon? But let's come back to the Fed real quick. And so you know we talked about the Japanese doing QE and QQE. We've done QE, QE two, three, maybe fours out there someday. But were we the first ones to ever try quantitative tightening, the actual unwinding of the balance sheet? Because I don't think the Japanese ever got there, right? They they got to the point of trying to raise rates a little bit. I think they got two rate hikes in before they had to cut again. So isn't it a little bit different this time? And you talked about devaluation. Isn't it a bit different this time with the Fed essentially releasing these securities back into the marketplace? Granted, it's roll-off, but since we're in a deficit to be refinanced, that's new securities coming out. Isn't it a little bit different, the approach of the Fed, by putting this out in the marketplace? And what is your take on that, on the impact it should have on rates if, if it hasn't already? Yeah, that's true. And, and that's absolutely a very, very critical debate, as you also know, of course, too well, that in, in rates markets, people are really asking the question exactly, well, if you implement a policy which happens to be called QE, where you buy some treasuries in the marketplace and put it on the Fed balance sheet, could it be really that that would have an asymmetric effect on the economy relative to when you do the opposite, namely when you bring back those treasuries to the market? In other words, the simplest example is, 
that the economic textbook would certainly tell you that there would be symmetric if you lower tax rates, let's say that you give households lower tax rates and therefore you give a tax cut to everyone, that would have a stimulating impact on the economy and you would see more growth. Well, if you then do the opposite and raise tax rates with the exact same magnitude of your cut, you should see by definition, at least in almost all models, at least in the Fed's model service of the U.S. economy, that model would tell you that a 10% cut in tax rates for households should have the exact same impact as a 10% increase in household tax rates, except, of course, with the opposite sign. And is it really possible to have found a, a magical policy tool that works really well when you implement it, but when you then do the reverse, it has no impact. So, uh, of course, to answer your question, we don't really know very well uh, if the policies that the Fed are now reversing, because they're still in the very early stages of doing this, are as innocent as when the Fed normally talks about it. That being said, what is distorting the big picture here in terms of the Fed running down the balance sheet is that at the same time, we are having a huge corporate tax cut last year. We have a huge fiscal expansion that in magnitude is adding a lot more treasuries to the market. So in terms of some numbers, the Fed running down the balance sheet is basically going to add roughly around $250 billion uh, treasuries to the market, whereas the tax cut is basically going to add roughly about six or $700 billion at the same time this year. So the main conclusion is that the magnitude of the tax cut in terms of the amount of treasuries that are coming to the market is a lot bigger from the tax cut than it is from the Fed running down the balance sheet. I know there's a lot of different numbers to run through, but the intuition is relatively simple, that if you continue to add more treasuries to the market, both because of the tax cut, but also because of the Fed running down their balance sheet, then uh, we are just magnifying this experiment of figuring out whether there is enough absorption capacity in treasury markets. Is there enough willingness among foreigners and among pension funds and insurance companies and investors in the U.S. to buy treasuries? And we are seeing a significant increase in the stock of treasuries outstanding, uh, and therefore the experiment continues whether modern monetary theory actually is true or whether this eventually will have an impact on rates, meaning long-term interest rates in the U.S. So given that backdrop, and that's something we've been looking at for at least the last 18 months, it was roughly that, I guess Yellen announced it back in, what was it, June of 17, that they were going to start this program. So I guess it's been a little, it's more like 18 months. But given that backdrop, and Powell was very, uh, Jerome Powell, the head of the U.S. Federal Reserve, or the chairman, um, he was very adamant about that this was, was not relevant to the market, this quantitative tightening. And you mentioned only the Treasury side. There's also the agency MBS side that has the roll-off feature as well. So the number is roughly you know, 50% more or so. It's been about $420 billion, I think, that's come off so far. And so uh, he was really ignoring it for a long period of time, just, just sloughing it off, saying it didn't matter, didn't matter. Uh, he even used the phrase automatic pilot back in December, which we thought was catastrophic to say that, that, that it was just going to continue. And something changed, you know, six weeks later at the next Fed conference. And people called it a, a Powell pivot. We like alliteration around here. I think it was a Powell pause. And all he said to the market was, we're going to look at it. And it seemed to be everybody said, oh, the Fed's got under control again. But he did nothing, right, in terms of policy. And, and the, the speculation is at the March meeting, there's going to be a definitive plan. Everybody's going to agree to it. It's going to look great. But it seems to me in the comments along the way, even though they were kind of flip-flopping between hawkish and dovish rhetoric, that 
I don't even know if there is a plan to really slow down the QT and people are baking that in and that's what's so accretive for risk markets. What, what is your take of where you think the Fed goes with the QT? Uh, I know the bond market's not pricing hikes for 2019 in the US at this point. That can obviously change with some GDP or inflation type data. But what do you think is, is kind of in the cards for the QT program this year and what does it look like? Yeah, no, it, it is pretty amazing when you're exactly as you're saying, Jeff, when you think about it, I mean, what did Jay Powell and the Fed do over this period since the beginning of this year, essentially? They basically only opened their mouth and said some words. Right. Nothing has changed in terms of policy. Interest rates have not changed. They have changed very little in terms of what's been going on with their communication about the economic outlook, broadly speaking. And you do really lean back in your chair and say, okay, as you exactly articulated, this is a Powell pause. Is this anything else? And once you then have thought about, well, this is just some words that they have put out, of course, it turns out to be extremely important. But then you end up asking, okay, but what can they actually control? Uh, can they control uh, leverage in corporate America? Can they control that uh, delinquency rates are beginning to go up for consumers? Can they control some of these uh, slowdown in growth in Europe, slowdown in growth in China? There is actually a limit to what they can control just by talking. So in that sense, uh, they can turn sentiment around. But for them to turn the actual economic indicators around, it gets a little bit more problematic. And in particular, when you have seen over the same period, a number of sentiment indicators, both small business sentiment, NFIB, also consumer sentiment, they have been declining, meaning we have a worse situation where both consumers look at the outlook with more worrying eyes. Same thing for corporates. All that speaks to that maybe it made sense that they turn more dovish, but um, you do get a little bit worried that some of the fundamentals here are a little bit more challenging to move rather than just move financial markets as relatively quickly as they did. So it's a difficult situation we're in now where spreads and equities are essentially at levels as they were before things started going down from October to December, because the outlook and some of the fundamental economic indicators have actually shown some signs of deteriorating, in particular, if you take the global growth picture into account. So, Torsen, we've been um, talking about central bank policy now. Uh, we've covered BOJ, we cover the Fed. I want to kind of move it to the third player in this, this quantitative easing game with the ECB. Their uh, negative was a negative 40 basis points on the overnight rate. They have a similar type of balance sheet as both the Fed and Japan, right around four and a half, maybe. Actually, I think it's actually north of five trillion for for the ECB. But the primary difference that I can see right now, at least, is that the economy in the EU seems to be slowing. You know, based on the the 19 or so countries that that form. Yeah, so I mean, you're seeing it in Germany. First, you saw it in you know the so-called former pig countries, I suppose. You know, Italy. Been a long time since I heard that acronym. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. right. I mean, right. talking about Greece earlier, so that that just kind of uh, struck the thought. But you know, now we're even seeing it in Germany as well. You know, so just what type of options does Draghi have in the remaining few months that he has left in in the position, and uh, where do they go from here if things go continue to get worse? Whatever. I- I talk to clients about the outlook and about markets and what will happen. I always try to think about the arguments that I'm hearing. Are they temporary or are they permanent? If Europe is slowing down, say, for example, because of the trade war, then we could probably come to the conclusion, well, in some sense at least, the trade war feels a little bit temporary. And here, I know temporary, you might say, well, it lasted a long time. But what I mean by temporary is that it could potentially go away very quickly. 
If, on the other hand, that Europe is slowing because China is slowing and uh, Germany exports a lot of goods and services to China, and so does the rest of Europe, well, then maybe the glide path that China is on for slower uh, growth going forward, maybe this is a more permanent problem. So the, the challenge to your good question is for the ECB and for us as investors, when we think about how long time negative interest rates in the euro area will continue, is to really think hard about what are the reasons why the European data has been deteriorating and will those reasons go away and could they go away relatively quickly or are those reasons poised to actually be more permanent in nature? And from that perspective, the fear you can have is that, uh, well, if the slowdown is driven by not only trade war, by, but also by a more glide path approach of, uh, of China gradually going to lower and lower growth rates, uh, then you could begin to fear that, um, exactly as you're pointing out, Sam, that uh, maybe the ECB uh, uh, at least needs to think about what are the options if they begin to get into a situation where the economy begins to go below potential and potentially move closer to the recession risk uh, that we at least definitely are seeing in Germany, uh, but also now are beginning to worry about the euro area more broadly. So when you, when you think about that and you think uh, a lot of the historical data on easing policies has, has been focused on the interest rate component, and that number usually is somewhere between three to 500 basis points of easing during a crisis or during a recession, or you know, it, maybe the recession is short-lived. I think people are just scarred when they hear recession. They think global financial crisis. They think about the technology sector getting wrecked over two years and, and losing 80% of its value. And so you know, if it's a normal recession, let's say we're on the shorter end, what, what do you think the ECB can do at this point? Do they just have to fire up QE again? I mean, negative 40 has been causing a lot of problems, I would argue, over there. And to go to I minus totally 300, that's a whole different ball game. It's one thing for people to think, okay, it's insurance to, to store this money in the bank. If you take 40 basis points away from me a year, look, I don't go broke overnight. But at 300, I think people revolt in the system. At least I've always felt that way. And I, I felt that that's kind of the reason that there is this rise of the crypto and alternative investing after this financial crisis. But what tools do, does the ECB have? And is, is Draghi just trying to hold his breath for another six or seven months uh, while he skates out of there? Absolutely. This is absolutely critical for all central banks around the world. Your weekend reading working papers uh, from the central banks and academics would tell you that there are three options for central banks that want to ease again. They could either do negative interest rates and, in, the, in, in some people's view, much more negative interest rates. The first observation is that that has just not worked, and it particularly hasn't worked in the euro area. Uh, the best statistic when you think about what the consequences have been of this is that just in 2014, we had zero bonds in the world that were yielding negative interest rates. And today, about 20% of all bonds outstanding here, both treasuries and credit in the world, now yield negative interest rates. That's about $9 trillion in total of bonds, dollars, that is, that yield negative interest rates. You look at that and say, was that the desired outcome? What has the distortive consequences been of all these negative interest rates in the euro area and in Japan? And what has that done to the hunt for yield globally, including in U.S. credit markets? And of course, also in markets um, for risky assets, more broadly meaning equity. So the first tool of negative interest rates, the answer simply is it just doesn't work. So the two other tools are then the answer to your question, what can they do? Well, they can do more QE or they could do what's broadly speaking called forward guidance. Forward guidance, as you know, is just communicating from the ECB or from the Fed used this also and saying, 
we promise you that we will keep interest rates at zero uh, until either a certain date or they could also say until the unemployment rate hits a certain level. But for now, for the ECB, the main tools that are left, at least from the very broad perspective, really are QE and forward guidance. And then on a more technical level, they could also do LTROs, uh, which gets a little bit more into the weeds. But that's essentially a way of providing liquidity to the banking sector. But in very simple words, most central banks around the world are out of ammunition, at least in the OECD area. And, and it is a quite worrying thought for investors. If you are a fixed income investor and you worry about uh, what level of return will I get in the future, uh, when you suddenly think about that uh, there is just very little dry powder left uh, among most central banks, really only the U.S. that now has a little bit with a Fed funds rate at two and a half, but that's not much either uh, because that becomes a function of how big a shock, the next negative shock the U.S. economy will be hit with. So this is all pretty negative sounding. So I want to try to perk it up a little bit, um, you know, because these are the things we talk about as uh, bond investors all the time. And, you know, it's, it's a slow moving train wreck and we can see the right on the wall, but we know it's going to take some time. Uh, you put out a research piece this morning that came across my inbox and some members of the team around here talking about the hoarding of $100 bills. Uh, maybe yeah. you can talk about uh, what you were getting out with that that slide this morning. I thought it was kind of interesting looking at the uh, supply outstanding of, of the various uh, denominations of currency. And, um, you know, uh, what are the implications there? Because I, I remember, um, well, what they did in the Eurozone, they they outlawed the 500 euro note, right? It was Ill- exactly. It's illegal tender now, even though exactly. they did exist and you had to convert it. Um, I remember Larry Summers talking about we should get rid of hundreds and fifties uh, because only drug dealers and and uh, you know uh, illegal gun runners are the people who use it. It's all the black market stuff. Even though the ATM downstairs does give out fifty dollar bills uh, if if you, if you pull out fifty, of course, or more. Um, but uh, what what is the implication of that? I think I think I took away the idea that there was more hundred dollar bills in circulation in terms of number of them than actually one dollar bills. Absolutely. So the statistic is that exactly that there are more hundred dollar bills in circulation than there are $1 bills. The reason why I started thinking about this uh, is simply the observation that um, the Fed funds rate today is 2.5%. So as an investor, I have $100 in my hand and I say, what do I want to do with this? And now the Fed is uh, so nice that they now are willing to pay me overnight 2.5%. So this, of course, becomes very important. And then I begin to ask, okay, so what else should I do? Should I buy duration, meaning should I buy 10-year treasuries? Or um, should I buy credit? Uh, Should I buy something else on the yield curve? And in that environment, when short-term interest rates go up, I would not have expected that there would be at a significant increase in the number of people who were holding $100 bills. In other words, why is the amount of cash in circulation going up significantly? when interest rates are going up. Now you could say that, uh, well, maybe this is just because the economy is growing and there's a transaction need. Uh, but the other statistic uh, that I also wrote about in that note is that um, the average $100 bill generally lasts on average for 15 years, where the average $1 bill only lasts for about six years. So that reveals at least that the $100 bills are used less frequently uh, and maybe they're not used for transaction purposes, but maybe they are just used for savings or for storing money. And if you begin to think about, well, if it's for savings and storing of money in my pillow or under my bed, well, why don't I just put that into the overnight um, Fed funds rate and get 2.5%? So uh, uh, the puzzle there that I was wrestling with uh, was to try to figure out 
Why are there so many $100 bills? And when you compare that to the amount of money in money market mutual funds, uh, their assets have been going up a bit. In round numbers, that's about $3 trillion. And in round numbers, the total stock of $100 bills outstanding is about $1 trillion in value. Uh, but that has grown much more. The $100 bill has grown much more in the last uh, five, six years than we have seen the amount of money in money market funds. So in short, the reason why this is interesting is we need to think about why is it that people are not just getting their Fed funds rate at 2.5%. And I totally understand that if this is the underground economy and there's something else going on also globally, and exactly as you said, Sam, if the 500 euro bill is gone, maybe that could be some substitution into dollars. Uh, but this has been a relatively steady movement. Uh, and now there was no bump when the 500 euro bill disappeared. Uh, so it's still a little bit of a mystery uh, why there's so much cash in circulation and why this is not just going in to get the overnight rate, uh, which uh, you and I all focus so much on. Yeah, no, I, I've, we thought it was interesting. We had a discussion about it at the desk. And I've, I've been a believer of the reason that these folks wanted to, and again, this is conspiracy theorists, so so take that uh, for, for what it's worth. But the reason that the you know, these talking heads and the folks who have the political power want to get rid of uh, the currency is so it's to force you to stay in the system. And if you have to put your money in the bank because it's hard to take out these denominations or it's such a fat stack of of pieces of paper because you have to take small denominations, you discourage people from employing money in the sector. And then you can hit them with overnight minus 100 basis points or something like that to where it's easier to go through the computers, you know, the blips on the screen and have a different way of wealth confiscation. So again, conspiracy theory, so you don't have to comment on that. Uh, but it is something that I equated to, and again, uh, as the rise of the crypto, and it's not to criticize those who are investing in cryptocurrencies, but I don't think it's much uh, that it's strange that there's a coincidence that they really gained in popularity post-crisis because it did exist Absolutely. before them. And, and to our previous discussion here about negative interest rates, I mean, remember, if I if I have my money in a bank account that gives a negative return, then of course I would rather have cash and have a hundred dollar bill in my hand. So that's also why maybe. Uh, one reason why uh, the amount of cash in circulation has gone up so much is because people are worried about negative interest rates, uh, of course, less so in the U.S., but much more so uh, abroad and especially, again, in uh, Europe and uh, uh, and Japan. Yeah, well, you don't have to worry about hedging. You can just go get those dollars directly in the spot market today. And if you're a euro-denominated client, you can take the $100 bills back. Uh, I guess you can only legally take them in $10,000 increments, right, uh, across borders. At least that's what the airplane tells me every time. <laughs> True. Yeah, so uh, I think maybe one last thing. I want to harp on some of the research, well, not harp on, but bring to re- listeners' attention uh, some of the recent research themes you've had out there um, that uh, we've been we've been watching you you put out for a while. Given we're talking about the Fed, we're talking about is it a pause or is it a change in direction? You know, when I think about the Fed's dual mandate of full employment, whatever that number is, um, when it comes to the unemployment rate. And, you know, price stability, which is defined to be um, inflation, <laughs> what number that is? Is it two? Is it three? I mean, we're, we're, we, they keep talking about, is there asymmetry or symmetry around the 2% number? Uh, exactly. But something you focused on for a while is the labor market and wage growth. And, yep. um, you know, when we, I look at the wage growth readings, whether you, know, you use something like the Atlanta Fed or use average hourly earnings or use the supervisory workers as well, you know, most of these numbers are printing at cycle highs. Now, albeit much lower than previous cycles, but um, these readings tend to be in the low to mid threes, especially if you use the Atlanta Fed number today, when those numbers seem to be somewhat in an upward trend. Maybe you can give our listeners kind of your thoughts about the labor market, the wage 
uh, side of the equation and how that leads into your thinking of overall inflation. Absolutely. So uh, there's an, exactly, as you say, a number of different indicators that have begun to flash red here in the last, uh, in particular, a year, but uh, over the last two years or so. And that's average hourly earnings, the employment cost index. It's exactly, as you say, for non-supervisory workers, uh, the Atlanta Fed wage growth tracker. Across the board, across uh, demographics, um, the trend has just been up, generally speaking, for labor costs. That's not a surprise in some sense when the labor market is tight, when we're producing a lot of jobs, when you have a low unemployment rate, then um, you should expect to see wages go up. Now, the question is, of course, um, what are the consequences of that? Well, so far, the increase in wage pressure has not shown up as an increase in consumer price pressure. So another way of saying is that the companies have been seeing higher labor costs, meaning higher wages, but companies have not been able to take those higher costs and lift prices of the products that they are selling. Uh, so from a pure Fed perspective, the Fed would say, well, that's just good news. We want people to get paid a bit more. Uh, and if this does not show up as higher inflation in stuff that I buy in, my, in the supermarket or things that I buy in my basket in the CPI, then things should be okay. Uh, the worry, of course, you can have now is that, well, if it does eventually spill over and begin to show higher inflation, then the Fed will have to begin to raise rates uh, and potentially a lot more. Uh, and the other thing that you can begin to worry about that, well, okay, if companies are not able to raise prices, but they are seeing higher labor costs, uh, doesn't that mean that profit margins are about to get squeezed? So in that sense, um, if there is a squeeze in profit margins because wages go up, then that would certainly be negative for the earnings outlook overall. Uh, so I end up after this long walk around in terms of thinking about what are the consequences of wages going higher is that either the consequences that the Fed will, if this continues, that the Fed will have to raise rates more and potentially a lot more, or alternatively the consequences that this will begin to squeeze profit margins, which would mean, of course, that earnings growth would be weaker. And both these events, either more rate hikes or lower profit margins, is something that is, very broadly speaking, more risk off and more worries about what will credit spreads do in that environment, what will the S&P 500 do in that environment. And that simply has to do with that we are late in the business cycle. But the two outcomes that could come out of this uh, are things that I think investors need to be a little bit worried about what the consequences are if this trend in the labor market of overheating and wages continue to grind higher across a wide range of measures if this continues. I know that's been our view for a while that all, uh, it's going to be tough to win in corporate credit because as you paint the picture, if you continue to have these forces pull through and they cause a little more confidence in the economy and more inflation, that leads to higher rates, which ultimately could put some downward pressure on the absolute return of credit products and perhaps exactly. the ability to to repay, as you mentioned too, because of the squeezing of margins if they don't have pricing power. And then further, if you do have this right rally at this point, that's got to signal something about a risk off, which should lead to spread widening. So it's been a big underweight in our portfolios for a while. And it continues to be because we just don't see it, it's too asymmetric in terms of losing uh, versus being able to identify a clear path to winning. And just to go full circle on exactly that argument, that there's both some economic arguments why we are late cycle or very simply speaking that the credit spreads could be under some widening pressure. But also the other argument we spoke about earlier that if we at the same time are going to expand dramatically the stock of treasuries outstanding, where are the dollars going to come from? 
that now have to go into treasuries. The risk is that some of those dollars could actually come from credit, and it could actually come from high-quality credit. So in that sense, um, not only are there some fundamental risks to the credit outlook, that's actually also, when we combine this with a somewhat unassociated argument that there's a fiscal expansion going on, a lot of treasuries coming to the market, then you add just another bullet point that's unrelated to where the economy is, but is heavily related to the fact that the more supply of treasuries comes to the market, and if that continues to increase and grow, then the dollars that are going to go into treasuries will have to come from somewhere, and the risk is that some of that somewhere will be hurting credit. Yeah, well, we couldn't agree with you more. A lot of people just say, but look at history, look at history. If rates go up, spreads have to tighten. And the have to is the thing that I struggle with when we get into the supply and demand of fundamentals. I think I think you distilled that argument perfectly, and we couldn't agree more. I, I see Sam looking at me over here that he wants to do uh, our game part of the segment. But uh, before we did that, uh, was there anything that you wanted to bring up today that's on the forefront of your mind that we haven't touched on yet? No, this all touches all the topics that I spend a lot of time on, both uh, working on together with my team here, but also discussing with clients all around the world. So I do think that... Um, these, these items are extremely important, and, and we could also have talked about the consequences for, for equities and uh, even emerging markets with some of these things, because it all hangs together with the QT combining that with uh, the, the fundamentals for the economy, so far still being good. But it, let's just conclude this by saying that all the, dis- the discussion we have had here has been under the assumption that the economy is not about to enter a recession, that the economy is not about to slow down, because if we were about to have a harder slowdown, for example, because of slowdown in uh, whatever the trade war getting worse, slowdown in Germany, China, or Europe getting worse, then, uh, of course, uh, credit and risky assets more broadly would be even more at risk than the scenario we already have painted here together. Right, and I think that's kind of the level of risk assets today. We're saying that those things are on the forefront of investors' minds. So uh, we've retraced a lot of the places we were last year, and so... Uh, if you think those risks are there, you got to be cognizant of the credit and, and the equities and, and the risk-off environment. So, well, Torsten, I, I want to send a thank you from our team. We really appreciate the stuff you guys put oh, out. My pleasure. Uh, it's, it's great hosting you today. But before you leave, we've got to take you through Sam's favorite part of the show. So I'll let Sam explain the rules. And that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. The rules of the game are I will give a term to which you and Sherman will alternate giving responses back for. So I'll start it off as always with Mr. Sherman to get the game going. And the first term is fiscal responsibility. Not mine. That's two words. I know it's supposed to be one word, but not mine. It feels like that's the way everybody feels today. It's not my problem. And to Mr. Slug, Phillips Curve. So that is, of course, uh, something that's been hibernating for a while, but I still think the Phillips curve is alive. So I, I've told people that to take on that point, this is how we get derailed in this part. But if you look at the Phillips curve, if we're, if we're going to believe in it again and it's going to come back to life, I think we're at the convex moment, to use a bond term, because you have wage growth, you have more jobs open than, than people unemployed. And if you're going to be believers in it, we have to be at that convex moment. So I, I think it's uh, the year of the Phillips curve. If it's going to break out, it needs to do so shortly. Back to Mr. Sherman with consumer credit fundamentals deteriorating buybacks that's been record high mattress portfolio bed bugs 
Yeah, uh, they're $100 bills. That's a lot of $100 bills, right? <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, I don't sleep on $100 bills because I'm worried about uh, the bed bugs eating them. That's that's the risk that people misinterpret. <laughs> Outside of it, that's a different type of deflator of inflation. You got to uh, plastic wrap those bad boys. Uh, and back to you, Torsten, with vaccinations. Vaccinations? Oh, the anti-vaxxers uh, is a worrying trend. 6G. Better than 5G, according to the president. U.S. home prices. Yeah, they are under some downward pressure. Universal basic income. MMT. Nordic yeah. model. Nordic model, of course, is uh, lovely because that's uh, where I was born. <laughs> home country bias, right? <laughs> I know, exactly. What the did? Is that a question? <laughs> what, the, what the did? <laughs> did, I guess. And the last one for... Torsen, nickname. I don't know, from QE to QT. <laughs> I thought it be like T-Slock or something, you know, have yeah, one no, of those street good. names, you know. Well, again, Torsten, thanks for the time. Thanks for playing the game with us. And oh, as always, pleasure. we appreciate your insights and everything. And keep up the good work with your team there. And uh, we hope to have you back on someday as well. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. We'll talk soon again. Okay. And so for the rest of the listeners out there, this is the end of the show. Uh, we'd like some feedback. If you have it, you can email us at shermanshow at doubleline.com. That's one word, shermanshow at doubleline.com. You can catch us on iTunes, Google Play, podcast, Doubleline website. So tune in to our next guest coming soon. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, DoubleLine Capital.